You're listening to the Changemakers Podcast, brought to you by the Thomson Reuters legal team in Australia and emerging markets. Changemakers is a global Thomson Reuters initiative that brings together industry leaders committed to improving diversity in the legal profession. And we want your commitment too. My name is Catherine Roberts, and I'm a global strategic client director with Thomson Reuters Legal. In this episode, we are tackling the issue of improving gender diversity in the leadership ranks of the law. Today, we'll be talking to two successful female changemakers. They are legal leaders and they are joining us to bring their own perspectives on women lawyers rising up through the leadership ranks. Our first guest is Larissa Randleman, President of the New South Wales Women Lawyers Association and a practising barrister. Larissa was called to the New South Wales Bar in 2006 and has expertise in all aspects of industrial and employment law. And she's also a contributing author to Thomson Reuters Legal Services, including practical law. Larissa is actively involved in a number of initiatives promoting the participation of women in employment and also in the law more specifically. Welcome to the program, Larissa. Thank you. And also joining the program today is Jackie Rhodes, Thomson Reuters Head of Legal Professionals in Asia and Emerging Markets. Jackie obtained her law degree and MBA in the UK and has practiced as a lawyer early on in her career. Her 30-year career journey has spanned many global geographies, including most recently as Managing Director for eight years of the Thomson Reuters business in Australia and New Zealand. Jackie's current regional role has her now based in Singapore, with a remit that encompasses leading the legal businesses across Asia-Pacific, the Middle East, Russia and Africa. Jackie is an executive sponsor of our Women at Thomson Reuters network and has previously had the sometimes challenging role of being my own career mentor. Thanks for joining the program, Jackie. Pleased to take part, Catherine. Let's kick off the show with a question for you, Larissa. There's a real perception out there that the bar has a male-dominated culture. It was reported recently, for example, that at the New South Wales bar, there are more male barristers aged 60 and over than women barristers in total. Larissa, how have you found the culture of the bar? I'm really curious to know what it's been like for you over the years. Well, that's true that there is a perception that the culture at the bar is male-dominated and that's based on uh, the fact that uh, there's only just over 20% of women as barristers in New South Wales. There's about 2,400 practising barristers. Only 11% of the senior council are female. There is a significant shortage of women at the bar and that is a problem because unless we are representative of the profession and um, clients that we provide services to, then there are issues about access to the law. The New South Wales Bar Association and the Law Council have recognised that it is a problem and two years ago introduced a national equitable briefing policy. The idea about the policy is that law firms and those that brief barristers consider briefing women when they do so. Now, it's only early days and we haven't seen data come out from that policy. That is something that is of that may assist changing the perception and encouraging the best and brightest graduates of considering a career at the bar because it is a fantastic career. It's one that can provide flexibility. It's interesting, exciting and challenging. When we break down the the representation of women, it's even less than the percentage of women at the bar. So it was only this year that there was a high court case where there was female representation on both sides. That's incredible. We're still in this realm of the firsts, which is long overdue. In some areas of law, it is better. So in crime, in family law, there is a better participation of female uh, females. But in areas such as commercial and corporate, uh, 
uh, taxation and regulatory law, there is a shortage of women. I think there may be a perception that when we think of what a barrister looks like or what a barrister sounds like, we think of someone who's loud and aggressive and strong. And But really, that's not the kind of service that I think most clients seeking barristers want. They want someone who is well-prepared, who understands their case, who understands the issues underlying that and who knows how to resolve the issues. Um, they want someone who's a good communicator, who's assertive and um, uh, who understands the system and, and how it works. So I think that that is going to take some time because it is the I guess the, the senior uh, solicitors who decide who to brief and uh, most of, of those are men. Thanks for that, Larissa. Jackie, so to you, in terms of your leadership journey um, to being a, a leader of a really large multinational business, what's your experience been in terms of gender equality in the workplace? Yes, Catherine. I mean, across my 30-year career journey, you know, I've seen a marked shift, I think, around gender equality. I think drawing on my sort of personal journey and experience, gender equality was really not even a topic for discussion early on in my career. I think you would have been regarded as a troublemaker for even actually having the discussion and certainly things like pay equality um, would simply, one just would not have raised it. Certainly, I think early on in my career, I, I've certainly experienced those issues like many of us have. Client events, a male-orientated sport, particularly, um, you know, networking opportunities missed because really you didn't feel a sense of inclusion. You know, meetings being called at, you know, the very end of the day when you're a young working parent with networking opportunities afterwards. And actually those things in, in some ways not so important, but in other ways so very important because it means that you don't get the visibility, you don't get the profile and really, equal opportunity. Now the great thing is I think things have progressed I think hugely in the 30 years thank goodness and I probably wouldn't be sitting in this role had, had they not and I think in many ways podcasts like this the debate being very open has really I think helped that so I do think things have come a long way. I think it's great to see business leaders now focusing more on practical issues like pay gap and addressing pay inequalities seen within certain industries and businesses. I do think we've still got a way to go in, in that respect. I've always approached gender diversity and, and all diversity for that matter from a commercial perspective as the business case for diversity has been well and truly proven and, and addressed. It simply makes good business sense to be inclusive when you are, you enhance your competitive advantage in the marketplace. The more inclusive you are as an employer, the more opportunities you're giving not only to a wider net of society, but your business growth potential too improves. So look, I think moving forward, employers of, of legal professionals and the legal profession itself does need to constantly review its numbers and hold itself accountable. And I include Thomson Reuters in that as we are an employer of many uh, legal professionals and lawyers ourselves. So ultimately, if you have mostly one demographic at the top of your organisation, you know, your perspective and performance is going to be quite narrow. So at Thomson Reuters, our law, law firm clients are certainly telling us about the pressure on them to address diversity head on. Law firm clients are demanding that the lawyers that work with them reflect the background of their, of their teams. So I think this does mean gender and also sexuality, cultural heritage,
reported, they all do need to be reflected in the in the ranks of law firms. Thanks for that, Jackie. And, and you're right, the, the business case is absolutely clear when it comes to, to why we need diversity. In fact, according to the legal research organisation Acritas, the latest evidence shows that gender diversity in legal departments significantly enhances performance of in-house teams, and that's across a whole heap of metrics. But then we also know for many, many years now, women have made up at least 50% of, of law graduates, yet the female partnership stats um, tell a very different story. So, Larissa, do we need more of a focus on really retaining women in the law as much as promoting them? I think we need structural change and I think we need cultural change. By that I mean that if we just wait over time, and I think I read somewhere recently that it's going to take 130 years for there to be equality. (laughs) I don't think anyone is prepared to wait that long or thinks that's a good idea. We need to take proactive steps to change our workplaces so that they are suitable for people who have responsibilities, caring responsibilities for their children or for their parents. And I'm not even sure that it's a gender issue. I think our workplaces are just not well adapted to recognising that uh, people who work full-time also seek to have other responsibilities or they may over time not be wanting to work full-time and have some flexibility to work less than full-time hours or work from home, that they are just as committed, uh, just as engaged and just as likely to want to be promoted than those that are, you know, what we call present presentism is very much a concept that is present in law firms. So I think that we really need to look at why there is still, I think, 13% only of women in equitable partnership positions, and I think it's just over 20% in partnership. The women who, as you've said, have been graduating in higher numbers from universities are simply not being promoted over time. They're choosing to leave law firms. They're choosing to leave the profession. In part, I think it's because their needs are not being accommodated. And so, you know, we're talking about the economic case. I mean, it's just such a huge loss to us from productivity perspective and economically that these um, these brilliant people, mostly women, are leaving the profession. Women lawyers have come up with five priority areas, which we think are really practical and doable. One of them is to introduce targets for partnership and leadership, and that's 40-40-20 targets, where over a period of three years, 40% of partners and those in senior positions should be women, 40% men and 20 other. And that's to provide flexibility if they're smaller law firms to be able to do that. And a number of law firms in Australia have done that. It's been much more prevalent in Northern America and in Europe for that to occur. And we've seen that work. The the figures have increased because of those targets. The cultural issue, what I'm I'm talking about, is that until men um, share responsibilities for caring, then we're always going to have women being seen as the other in the workplace, someone who requires special needs or consideration, somehow doesn't fit into the system. So we really need to mainstream this idea that both parents have equal sharing responsibilities for children and should be accessing parental leave and flexible work. In Australia, most law firms have quite generous paid parental leave policies for men and women, but men are not accessing those policies. That's a real question about why that is so. I think culturally, men don't feel comfortable, they don't feel supported in accessing those provisions. So I think structural issue about workplaces and um, the cultural issue about equal sharing responsibility, something that would significantly change the capacity of women to be able to reach the most senior positions because at the moment we're simply not able to do so in equal numbers. Really great observations, Larissa. So over to you, Jackie. Have you got any further observations?
observations on, on how women can be retained as well as promoted into leadership positions? Yes, Catherine. I strongly believe in sponsoring female talent specifically. I've come to believe that sponsorship of female talent at the top of our organisations provides women with the best possible boost to their career trajectory. It provides a boost because you have you know senior leaders behind the scenes really rallying and advocating for female talent, ensuring they're provided with opportunities for visibility and exposure. The good thing is that here at Thomson Reuters we see this too. We've invested in women's leadership programmes such as the Leadership Programme for Women, which specifically targets strong female talent across the business globally and really designs a programme that actually provides the right sort of self-awareness of, of you know, some of the very practical issues that can actually inhibit and get in the way of a female high talent sort of uh, fulfilling their true potential. I personally, and I know you have, Catherine, had the experience of that programme and it was actually truly a, you know, a eye-opening experience that I think, you know, I'd love to see many more high potential women having the opportunity to go through that. I would also like to touch on mentoring, um, my hot sort of potato. Look, I've often seen women wind up in endless mentoring relationships and make no mistake, I'm fully supportive of mentoring. It absolutely has its place. But in my experience, it can sometimes end up that we spend a lot of resources and time focusing on what's wrong or what needs to be improved often to emulate maybe a set of values that actually aligned to probably quite a male-dominated culture, to be frank. What I'd love to see more of is that resource being put into advocating for that female, providing practical career opportunities for learning, secondment opportunities, taking a few risks on that female. So, you know, I'd certainly like to see, you know, more effort in our organisations going there. Look, I also believe female leaders have the responsibility to pay it forward and to ensure that women that come after them are afforded the appropriate opportunities. And I, I know I have a lot to thank for some of my female managers who helped me along. And I really hope that we continue to, to have the same commitment to pay it forward. In terms of, um, Larissa, in terms of bullying and sexual harassment in the legal industry, we've seen an IBA report that quite damning for female lawyers and what they face in the legal industry. Industry. What are your thoughts on this? There is no doubt that um, there's endemic rates of sexual harassment and bullying in the legal profession in Australia, as the report shows also in other parts of the world. Now, firstly, as lawyers, it's really incumbent on us to make sure that we act lawfully um, and get our house in order, even more so than other professions. That's the first point. Secondly, I think there's been quite a bit of research done now about the extent of of sexual harassment and bullying and the circumstances it occurs in and the lack of reporting. And I think really women fed up <laughs> and impatient for change and they really want action to occur now. There's been enough research and enough talk. We know that there are some practical and measurable steps and initiatives that can be taken that will reduce the incidence of sexual harassment and bullying. And I think, for example, one of them, one that wouldn't cost any money, so to speak, is quite positive in a number of different ways. And that is about having the idea that people who see or they hear about conduct that is uh, unlawful and improper have some obligation 
to report. It's often referred to in um, in research as being an active bystander. And we know that cultural change happens when there's leadership from the top. What Women Lawyers Association is calling for as an introduction to uh, workplace policies that where those in leadership positions and those who supervise staff see or hear conduct that they consider to be improper, being sexual harassment or bullying, they have some obligation to not just say nothing to stand by, but to actually get involved. And I'm not talking about trying to intervene in the contact at that moment, perhaps that may be appropriate, but more in a strategic way about reporting it, about making sure that it's dealt with. Because at the moment, it is up to the person who's being sexually harassed or bullied to come forward, make the complaint, be the one that goes through the investigation process. And that is that is a lot to ask of someone who is alleged to have suffered that detriment. And we're not going to be able to deal with these problems as long as we rely on those that perhaps are the most junior or the youngest in our profession to carry that responsibility. So introducing such a policy is a positive measure. It would need to be something that is accompanied by behavioural training. By that I mean face-to-face training where people actually come together and talk about what they consider to be conduct that is acceptable, conduct that is not acceptable. Some people may think that a sexist joke is fine. Some people may not. I mean, that is part of the conversation we need to have. This is not a particularly a grey area. It's about power relations and it's something that we can deal with. Some law firms have introduced these kind of provisions and they have been successful. We saw last year a very senior partner terminated from a large law firm in in Australia and that was because they had such a policy and they relied on that. They didn't rely on a particular one complaint. So that's something that can be done. Other measures is um, we need our regulators to provide support and assistance for people who, who need advice. People don't feel comfortable about uh, necessarily approaching their, the human resource manager. There is, um, at the moment, very little for them to um, to turn to. We have a number of people contacting Women Lawyers Association and we provide assistance where we can. Also, governments need to really step up in this area. We need leadership from the federal and state government to amend uh, the, the Sex Discrimination Act to make it similar to like we have with occupational health and safety law where there is a positive obligation on employers to provide a safe workplace, to provide a workplace free from sexual harassment and bullying. So there's some obligation on them to take positive steps rather than just waiting for a complaint to come in. Thanks for that, Larissa. And to your point around leadership and being visible in this space, Jackie, you are very active when it comes to diversity and inclusion. You're a very keen ally of our Pride group and you're an executive sponsor of our our women's group. What's your take on the role of visible leadership in the diversity and inclusion space? Yes, Catherine, look, I can't stress to you how essential it is and and now more than ever, I think, for, for leaders to positively drive cultural change. Every organisation, including Thomson Reuters, I think has a huge opportunity to be visible in their support and actively champion gender and all aspects of diversity and inclusion. So employees need to see this, but so do clients, so does the broader community. Thomson Reuters has, I think, a unique position in the legal industry. We have incredible client relationships which span law firms of all, all sizes. 
corporate, in-house departments, government and so on. So, you know, I think we really want to use that position in the industry to convene a meaningful dialogue on gender diversity. So hence this change makers program. Yeah, that's great. Larissa, in terms of women's advancement, you know, I hear a lot as a response around the merit argument for women and, and how we advance through the leadership ranks. What do you think about this merit argument and what do you think its place is in, in this space? I think merit is a concept that is defined and uh, used in a, in a male-dominated workplace culture. So I think we really need to unwrap that to understand the way that works and how that benefits women or holds women back. One particular issue that um, we've been looking at this year and looking to start the conversation is about remuneration and on what basis remuneration progression is made, on what basis remuneration is decided about the gender pay gap. One of the largest gender pay gaps in Australia is in the legal profession. And I think it's because one of the reasons is is because we have a culture of keeping remuneration secret. Often we don't know how we compare to our colleagues and, and we don't know on what basis promotions are made or what's considered for remuneration progression. So I think when we talk about the concept of uh, what's seen to be a way that women can get ahead in the profession, the concept of merit, I think it's important that we have transparency about those terms, transparency about key conditions such as remuneration and transparency about the way we work as a culture in the workplaces. So where you have secrecy around such an important issue such as remuneration, that impacts on the way people might work together or not work together, share information. So it's got broad ramifications. So when you you provide more certainty um, and understanding about what is expected from people to progress and what's expected in performance reviews and progressions and then I think that will be beneficial to uh, women to understand how they can be seen to be meritorious and what they're being judged upon. We know that um, from research that women do much more administrative type of work in law firms. They're on committees, they assist with uh, client functions, they involved in improving the organisational structure of their workplace but is that something that they get rewarded on uh, in many workplaces that may not be. If it's only about the billable hour, then that is a very narrow measure because that may not take into account the long-term relationships that are formed with clients, client development, looking at bringing new clients into an organisation. So I think that we really need to explore the notion of merit and things like remuneration in more detail to understand those structural issues that, that are not assisting women to progress. I couldn't agree with you more. So Jackie, you've touched on your own leadership journey and the work that Thomson Reuters is doing to champion diversity in the profession. But what is Thomson Reuters actually doing in terms of its own leadership ranks? So we have a 2020 target to ensure at least 40% of our senior leadership positions are made up of women. And we're very committed to diversity more broadly as well. So look, I can't talk globally, but I can talk to Australia and New Zealand. So where we're at at this point in time, the top three senior levels are, those roles are 33% of those are are female. Though, of course, you know, not only do we need it to be 40%, but quite honestly, we should be striving for 50%. So we will continue to drive for this. I mean, one thing I would share that I think has sort of helped us on our journey beyond, you know, a lot of the things that um, we've, we've alluded to, such as sort of leadership, program 
programs for women. I think certainly the introduction of diverse interviewing panels were, have really helped us challenge the status quo when we're looking at promotions and the attributes of, of leadership teams to really create more gender balance and, and, and more diversity. So that's certainly something I felt has really brought us results. And I love being part of this story, Jackie. So I can't wait to see what progress we achieve by 2020. So Larissa, I'd love to to close out this episode with your own outlook on gender equality in the legal profession. How much more do we have to do? And really, how long is this going to take? Well, I, I am positive about change. And I think we can get there quite quickly if we all work together in a concerted way. I don't think we have turn the corner in some areas but if you look at it over a long term in the last 30 years there has been fundamental change. Uh, I think women have entered the profession but they haven't been able to mould the profession to make it suitable to them and I think that's really the next step where we need to be. We're still in this area of firsts. Last year was 100 years since women have been able to practice in the legal profession. Chief Justice of the High Court Her Honour Justice Kiefel spoke at the Women Lawyers Conference last year and she said that when she was in practice she felt like a lone tree in a forest. I think it's better than that now but I think we're still a small like a small bush or an outcrop of trees in a forest we are getting bigger but very slowly and the change is glacial and that's just not good enough we need to make progress quicker because we're losing so many talented women from the profession and we want to keep them we want them to be supported and we want them to succeed Okay, that's great. And yeah, let's get a move on. I agree. Larissa and Jackie, it's been such a pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Changemakers podcast. Until next time.